Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Think Change. Talks, trainings, and tools to help in your work for or with people with intellectual and other developmental disabilities. Learn more at www.thinkchange.training. Made possible through support from ARC Thrift Stores, The Arc of Aurora, Developmental Pathways, and PASCO, Personal Assistance Services of Colorado. Think Change Talks. People with disabilities who live in the U.S. are two and a half times as likely to be victims of violent crimes as those without disabilities, and three times as likely to be targets of rape, robbery, or aggravated assault. Victimization and people with disabilities, it's real. A series of different perspectives. An overview. Well, we're dealing with the most vulnerable people in our society. You know, the amount of victimization that we see is astounding. There's so much that gets reported now that had never been reported before, and yet there's still so, there's still so much stuff that doesn't get reported. My name is Sergeant Eric Ortiz with the Aurora Police Department in Aurora, Colorado, and I supervise the Special Victims Unit for the Aurora Police Department, where we handle crimes against at-risk adults, which include people with intellectual disabilities. Crimes uh, that range from small misdemeanor crimes uh, of caretaker neglect to um, murders and homicides uh, dealing with, with people that have been neglected to the point where they've, they've died. Exploitation, sexual abuse, uh, assaults of many different degrees. Again, all those reports come through my desk and I read them and determine whether or not they need follow-up investigation. And if, uh, if, if I determine that they do, then they get sent to my investigators who go out and, and do the footwork and do interviews and, and talk to victims. It, it takes a, a, an educated officer to go into these type of situations to be able to make a determination that yes, this crime occurred and this is what we're going to need to be able to, to bring it to, to jury. Uh, people are so vulnerable to it. Again, a lot of them can't defend themselves. Um, they can't speak up for themselves. And uh, the other reason why is I, I think it was just is was really underreported before. Well, here's a stat that just is a, a, an astounding stat that kind of makes it real that you know people with IDDs when it comes to sex assaults. 90% of people with intellectual disabilities will be victims of sex assault. And 50% of those, out of those 90%, will be victims of sex assault at least 10 times. That kind of gives you an idea of how vulnerable these people are. You can call the police, or you can call Adult Protective Services and report it to them. 
So it's a team effort for all of us to kind of to try to prosecute these crimes. Lawmakers and legislatures and people in our society have recognized that there's certainly a need for police departments like ours to dedicate um, investigators and um, and training and education to this topic because it's 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 an epidemic. It's become our duty to protect these people. We're going to relentlessly identify those who perpetrate on our at-risk citizens, and we're going to investigate and try to come to a conclusion, whether that be criminally or at least stop the bleeding and stop the abuse um, and stop the exploitation. I wish everyone knew how prevalent it is, the high numbers in victimization of people with disabilities, that people would start by believing them and um, how what that creates in a person's ability to move forward and to tell their story if they feel safe and believed. I'm Carol and I'm a program manager for Victim Services Unit um, for law enforcement. We respond to all victims of crime, including those with disabilities. We take the approach that we need to meet all victims where they're at and really um, try to meet their needs. And what we see is that um, people with disabilities, it's not always real apparent. Sometimes we need to kind of um, ask them what their needs are, but we need to really respond um, not only to their needs, their communication style, but um, let them kind of lead us through that and respect um, where they are and also then reading into that the trauma piece and what it does to all victims but um, really respecting the barriers that are sometimes there for victims with disabilities that make this even harder for them to go through this process. But I think there's a vulnerability that is created by a disability that makes the experience, um, certainly from the system's perspective, more complex. But what I feel like is the, that vulnerability that sets them up for victimization in some situations, um, we as a system don't want that vulnerability to be used against them or to be a barrier and reporting it. And when you're this close to it, like we are when we're serving those victims, you really get a sense of how shattered their lives can be by victimization. I also don't ever want it to be looked at as, from the victim's perspective, is that they're less than or that they're being judged by their disability. And in other words, you know, we're giving this to you because you're a victim and we accommodate every victim's needs, whether it be mental health, whether it be language, what, culture, whatever that may be, this is why we're here for you and you deserve it. Sexual Assault I'm Linda, I have disability, and I'm victim of sexual assault. I drew these today. Dry bit of it because 
I'm an artist now. I've been an artist since my mom and dad passed. One was when I was about 10 years old. And I was playing basketball. And some guy came up to me and says, oh, I heard you got a new record. I was uh, one of those 45 records. And I said, yeah, why? And he says, let's go up to the hall and play this record. And I didn't know what he was up to because I was too young. I was 10. And so when I got there, I said, what am I doing in here? I'm supposed to be at my own hall eating dinner. And he, that's when he for sex on me and I was too scared and uh, and and I told him I need to get to my hall I need to eat and this was an employee and that person who was had fired him because he found out about it had sex and I told him no and he didn't know the word no means I told him no and he didn't the word no is I said that means you cannot do that and then another thing like that happened again here I was on my way up to the apartment I was on the second floor apartment 205 and I was getting ready I locked the door to go in and he forced his way in there and he said can I trouble you some water I said I asked him very nice I said you need to go to the drinking fountain to get the water but he didn't understand that, so he just forced his way in and forced sex on me on that. I said, that's the guy that, that raped me. So he went and, go, and took three cops to arrest him, put him in handcuffs, and took him to jail. And so there was another girl right, raped by him, too. And she testified the same thing I said. And that's how he got four years. We had to go to his sentence. He got four years in prison. Bunch of creeps wants to take advantage of women. This ate this belly especially. Um, I've changed. I know what to do now is anybody assault me. And that sometimes uh, a adult can be a good Samaritan by calling the police and trying to protect that person that's being assaulted. A victim of a sex assault, who it is? I always say that the first thing I say is, I want you to know that I believe you. This detective believes you. We're here for you. You didn't do anything wrong. As a community, we need to be doing that with our sex assault victims. We need to be embracing them and we need to be saying that to them. We believe you. You didn't do anything wrong. I am Yvette. I am a deputy district attorney, and I've been doing um, district attorney work for 17 years in the community with a specific emphasis on sexual assault and specifically related to people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. People with intellectual and developmental disabilities are oftentimes victimized, they're targeted, they're exploited, and, they're, and that is done specifically by people who um, are predators, sexual assault predators regularly 
choose these types of victims because it's easy to offend against them and they understand intuitively that it's going to be difficult for them to come forward. So important to not only educate our community, but our law enforcement personnel to educate prosecutors. Most sexual assault victims generally will not report because they fear not being believed. This is even more highlighted for somebody with an intellectual or developmental disability. These predators know specifically that this person will have a difficult time communicating that sexual assault because it's so such a personal thing anyway to any victim even more so for somebody with an intellectual or developmental disability if we can bring some kind of education training some kind of um, understanding to the community in general about this kind of crime and how it's perpetrated on um, victims who have intellectual and developmental disabilities, then maybe we're going to be more successful and be able to um, really go after these perpetrators because it, it's, um, it, it's real. I mean, it is a real, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're exploited um, from people who are supposed to be their caretakers. They're exploited by people who are, you know, bus helpers, aides, family, um, all kinds of people that are close to them. And if we don't give them a voice, then we allow, we are, we are in essence allowing this to continue. We can't. Law enforcement and prosecutors need to be trained, need to have um, specific training about how to prosecute these cases successfully, how to be able to get that investigation, um, communicate, and how to be able to present that to a jury. This doesn't happen in a vacuum, you know, and it's our responsibility. It really is our responsibility to do these, to do this. We can't just sit by and let this happen. People who perpetrate, especially people with sexual assault, um, once they figure out that they can be successful, they continue to do it and they get better and better and better and better at it. And that is what is so insidious about the whole thing, right? There are lots of steps between filing of charges and actually going to a jury that can look like and can be justice for that victim, which means that there's going to be interaction between myself as a prosecutor and that victim and I'm going to figure out for that victim with that victim what justice looks like it doesn't always just have to be a jury trial justice can look like a lot of different things trafficking my name is Petrie Brill and I am an advocate with the Arc of Aurora in the state of Colorado we work with persons with intellectual and developmental disabilities, including those, including those who have been victims of trafficking. 
It does surprise a lot of people when they hear that this is um, a prevalent issue among the disability community, um, but it really is um, true exploitation at its most concrete. Two clients that I work with, they're brothers. One brother owns the home, the other brother lives in the home. Um, there are a lot of stipulations for the brother to remain in the home. And it does involve um, cleaning, it involves you know, working on the house, um, and in fact, while threatening for him, the threat is can he remain in the home or not, right? That's what's held over his head, but so is food. And his food is withheld quite often if he doesn't do what his older brother is asking him to do. So the tasks that he's asked to do to maintain the home, to kind of keep the home updated um, and even livable, aren't uh, matching his abilities physically. Um, not to mention, a lot of these tasks are kind of out of his purview because of his disability. Um, like one of the examples was the refrigerator went out and he was asked to fix the refrigerator. That's, he can't, that's not possible. Here's this older gentleman with, he's medically fragile, physically frail, and then on top of that disabilities, um, living, you know, kind of under constant fear that at any given moment he could be kicked out of the home and be homeless. Where would he go? He has no other family. He doesn't, he didn't really have any connection to resources. Um, so, you know, you can imagine that that kind of fear would drive you to do whatever you have to do to keep a roof over your head. It's infuriating because we're supposed to be taking care of each other, um, just in general, as humans, right? And then on top of it, we have a vulnerable population that is trusting on other people to protect their best interests. And um, I really do think it's a breakdown in um, ethics and in morals to victimize the most vulnerable people in our population. It's almost like a trusted person in their life, right? A consistent person. It becomes normalized. And so then they don't tell, they don't share what's happening. And that's the exact avenue that these perpetrators are hoping for because then once it becomes somewhat normalized for the client or the person with a disability, that's their in for it to continue for as long as they want it to. It's shameful. It just completely takes away, um, you know, dignity and humanity from people who entrust their care, their supports, their protections in others. In Colorado, individuals with disabilities have been trafficked for both sex and for labor. Uh, there have been n numerous cases of individuals with disabilities being subjected to labor trafficking, particularly in sort of low-skilled labor that might not be highly monitored and where the trafficking might not be noticed. My name is Pat. I'm a lawyer with Colorado Legal Services, and I head up our Survivor Services Unit, which includes an anti-human trafficking project. The federal and state definitions of human trafficking involve forced or coerced labor by an individual, 
including potentially forced or coerced uh, commercial sex or commercial sex involving minors. So in terms of the actual definition of, la of trafficking, there's some sort of compelled labor involved where somebody is being forced to provide sexual services or other labor against their will. Individuals with disabilities are extremely vulnerable to human trafficking because they can be tricked into providing services or do not know how to respond, uh, how to report it, maybe have difficult ar difficulty articulating what exactly is happening, um, may have been tricked by somebody there um, they believe is a friend and so forth. So there are many different ways trafficking can happen. There's often um, related to trafficking some sort of abuse of benefits um, and so there's that vulnerability. So sometimes uh, an individual is, has their benefits being taken from them, but they're also being forced to clean houses or um, work on a farm or sell sexual services. Um, so it's often the case that the benefits abuse, benefits fraud is combined with the labor or sex trafficking. So for any victim, there's a sense of betrayal. There could be extreme fear and anxiousness because they're afraid of retaliation from the trafficker. There can be shame if they blame themselves for having gotten into the situation. Um, just disillusionment that they, somebody they thought was going to help them hasn't. I mean, I think that's fairly universal um, for people with disabilities. It can be very confusing um, that somebody they um, thought were taking care of them ended up betraying them. Um, might make it difficult in the future to, to kind of figure out how to try to return to to their daily life. If we allow standards to be lowered, um, you know, labor standards, societal standards, if we allow it to be lowered for some people, it undermines all of society. That if we allow people with disabilities to be exploited, um, who's next? It's, you know, we need to have standards for treatment of employees, treatment of our fellow humans in society. The general public is so important in identifying trafficking. There have been so many instances where somebody just noticed something was not right and and found help, reported it, um, found a hotline, found an advocacy organization. So even if they don't know the definitions, even if they're not professional in whatever topic, there it's so important that the general public be aware of um, of just situations that don't look right. Supportive services are very important. Um, we've seen individuals with disabilities and from the general public who just really undergo a transformation with support, um, especially case management support. Um, they can recover. They can become stronger than ever. Financial exploitation. I'm Helen, caregiver for my mom, who had severe disabilities, um, and my family and I were victims of financial exploitation. They weren't supposed to put that wall in, and that I paid for it. It's all right here. We had a private entry for her, um, a handicap ramp. The bathroom had to be built um, for her, just you know, for a wheelchair. And it 
took several months, but I rebuilt a room for my mom and was attached to my house. And I went to housing authority to uh, apply for a loan. And they had a, <clears throat> a loan, excuse me, for $25,000 that um, I qualified for because of my income, because of my mother's um, disabilities. So we built a place and we moved her in. I qualified for what they called an exception loan. And it was described to me that I would pay a 3% simple interest at the end of the loan. As a matter of fact, the day of the closing, he said it will be $750 in interest when you pay off the loan. And I wouldn't have to, because it was a deferred loan, the only time I would have to like pay it back is if I sold the house or I didn't live there anymore. So 15 years fast forward, we, my family um, and I decided that um, we want to move in together. I called the housing authority and I asked her, how do I repay the $25,000 loan? She said, $25,000, it's $36,000. And I said, and I didn't, I wasn't being rude. I was just like, do you know who I'm talking or who you're talking to? Um, because I thought maybe she had the wrong person. <laughs> and um, she said, you have been accruing interest for 15 years and you haven't made any payments and that is your interest. And I said, no, that's wrong because I shouldn't have to pay anything until, um, you know, I sell the house or whatever and I'm just trying to figure that out, you know. Uh, from there, I went to different agencies and I try to get help. It scared me and my dream of like moving, first of all, was taken away, but second, I didn't know how I was going to pay that. They could take my home away and that's not their purpose. Their purpose is to have sustainable housing and they don't tell you that. They don't talk to you about like, well, you know, if you don't pay this current interest. I think if we weren't strong enough to like push through and persevere, um, it could have gone a really bad way. I could have been homeless, my family could have been homeless. And I would never know because they never sent me any statements. And then to have them be cruel. To me, they were cruel to me, the way they treated me and my family. I had a lot of stress in my life. I was worried about my mom and her health and my children and working and how am I going to get food on the table. The people that are supposed to be helping you, like, throw you back into, like, another trauma. I've got post-traumatic stress disorder. They weren't honest about it. They, they're not honest on their website. To this day, they are not honest about what's going to happen. I feel like I was kind of tricked. Predatory lending. I mean, that's what we call it. If, if you are not, if you're lending money to someone, or if you're someone that's looking for a loan, and the terms and the conditions are just too good to be true, it's too good to be true. They know you're desperate, so they, they exploit that and they take advantage of people. My name is Yvonne, and I have worked for the banking and financial industry for 34 years. I've done everything from tellering to new accounts, um, management, ATMs, debit cards. 
And um, I was also in security. So um, I've been throughout the entire gamut of the banking industry. So I see a lot of what the customers are going through, what the bank has gone through, and what we have to do to protect people um, from financial exploitation. You really need to shop around. You know, if this was such a great deal, let me check this bank. We need to check this out because we don't think that this is, this is proper. We don't have loans that you don't have paperwork that you take home with you. We don't give loans to people and say, pay it back when you want to. We spend a lot of time um, training and talking to our staff because it's very important for them to be able to identify. And sometimes it's very difficult to identify if someone's being exploited. You see them every day, you see them with this caregiver and you think everything is okay. Sometimes it's not and it's hard to separate and, and look at it as, you know, what is really going on here? Are the characteristics that they're normally expressing the same? Do they feel stressed? Are they taking out money that they usually don't do? Are they doing activities that's beyond their um, cognizant and abilities to be able to do? Those kind of things that we, we look at, and it's sometimes difficult to get them away from their caregivers to talk to them or ask them questions to see if there's anything going on. It's every day. It's every day, and it's not maybe people all with IDD, I see elder abuse, and it's not just people coming in with them, um, telling them to take extra money out. It's through the internet, it's through emails, emails being hacked, it's through letters being sent saying, you know, you just won the lottery, all you have to do is go to your bank and take out $2,000 in Western Union to us, and they're like, oh, this is, this is my dream. But any time that you coerce or intimidate or harass or um, just make someone feel uncomfortable to they you feel that they need you need to give me money why aren't you giving me money I'm gonna go to the store for you um, why don't you buy me a pack of cigarettes you know that's the least you can do that's exploitation because they're feeling that oh I guess I should give them something because they are helping me when they should just be helping them because they want to help them not because they're entitled to anything we just have to make sure that we're we're watching, that we're watching each other, and we're watching our family, our friends, our community, and speak up. Don't just walk away and say, well, that's not my problem. Because, you know, it could be your loved one someday that's, that could be exploited, and we need to make sure that we protect people with disabilities all walks of life. Medicaid fraud. I am Joseph, and I have a developmental disability and I've been a victim of Medicaid fraud. So I was on Medicaid and due to my disability and also medical problems I actually couldn't work anymore and um, this was before the Affordable Care Act so I had no insurance and so I ended up actually uh, being homeless and I got into um, a spot in a supportive housing program which I was really excited about because I thought I was going to get some help. And then um, I, within days, within 48 hours, I noticed, you know, I would log on to my Medicaid account to see, you know, the billings. I started to see thousands and thousands, literally almost up to $20,000 of, of billings for services that I was not getting. And this was being billed from the place that was supposed to be helping me.
So I was really troubled and concerned, and uh, so I brought it up to the management there, and they were not really receptive to me bringing that up, and they pretty much threatened me and said, well, you either, that's part of the deal to stay here, so you either go along with it or you're going to go out on the street. And it's really terrible because it was clear to me this was not just me, this was just their routine. And I can imagine this, this you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars that are being taken away from uh, all of us that are on Medicaid, taken away from the government, taken away from the taxpayers. And um, it, it, it's also very discouraging to you. You're very powerless. You're in a very vulnerable position. And uh, they're essentially using your Medicaid card and your Medicaid number like it's a credit card and stealing money from the government and, and using your name. Because I started seeing, you know, the, the ugly side of some of these uh, um, organizations that are supposedly there to help people that are in trouble, people that don't, uh, are ill, people that are powerless. Um, and you get put in this situation, either you go along with this Medicaid fraud uh, in your name or you're tossed out on the street. Um, so I decided I went to the district attorney's office because I didn't want to be a part of it. And true to their word, I was tossed out on the street. A nonprofit legal aid group was assisting me. And uh, I got a notice from Medicaid that I had been approved for in-home supportive services, which I didn't even know what it was. I know I had not asked for that. So I went to see the attorney and his face you know, turned white. He was like, well, you can't get in-home supportive services. You don't even have a home. So it was clear that somebody Again, using my name, my met in my name, put in for these services and then started billing for them, services I was not even getting. And it makes you start to realize that these issues are, are not one-offs, they're systemic. They particularly identify people that are vulnerable, that have disabilities, that might have uh, mental uh, disorders they're dealing with, medical problems, etc., and are really in bad positions, and that's how they take advantage. I started not trusting my providers, the people that were, you know, whether it be therapists or doctors, and that's not a good place to be. You need to trust these people. If you have a disability, if you have some medical impairments, you need to trust people because you need their expertise to help you. And I'm very, as a beneficiary, and I, I think the vast majority of beneficiaries, we're very appreciative of these kind of programs. We're very appreciative of the taxpayers who fund these programs on our behalf. So it makes you very upset, very mad to see people taking advantage because they're taking advantage of me, they're taking advantage of all the beneficiaries, and they're taking advantage of all the taxpayers. Despite my disabilities, I at least had the capacity to figure out what was going on, to log on and see. and. There are other people with much more serious disabilities than mine that don't even have that capacity. So if they were doing this to someone like me who could find out about it, who could report it, it just makes you wonder what's going on for people who are in even a worse position than me. So I think basically the people on the street think of Medicaid and they look at how what a huge expense Medicaid is to our state and federal budget and they think that it's for people like on welfare um, and people who are lower income and I don't think a lot of people understand that Medicaid 
really is for our disabled community as well. Um, people who have disabilities or aren't able to work or parents who have kids with disabilities that just can't afford the the expense that comes with it um, are really a large part of the Medicaid beneficiaries. So when we have Medicaid fraud, it directly impacts those folks with disabilities because it almost cheapens or minimizes the availability um, and the thought of what Medicaid really is for, and it's to provide those basic medical care to people who can't afford it, and those with disabilities have just such an inflated um, medical budget that it's there to help them. So I'm Allie Thompson. I'm a criminal investigator with the Medicaid Fraud Control Unit of the Colorado Attorney General's Office. So our unit investigates um, Medicaid provider fraud. So when people are billing Medicaid for services not rendered or um, submitting false claims, we investigate that as well as abuse and neglect of patients in Medicaid facilities. Our unit um, sees a lot of different types of provider fraud. So we see, um, again, people who submit bills for services not rendered. For instance, we had a speech therapist who saw a, a variety of kids um, providing speech language pathology services. And she would see them maybe once and then continue to bill for 12 months worth of service when she wasn't providing those services or seeing any of those children. We also have cases where um, durable medical supply companies are refurbishing used wheelchairs and billing Medicaid for new wheelchairs. Uh, we have, again, with the DME companies, they like to send um, things that aren't needed. So if you hurt your back and your, um, your doctor prescribed a back brace, well then you get an arm sling and the back brace and um, maybe some incontinence briefs or stuff like that just to inflate those bills and steal from the Medicaid program. The, the fraud that we're seeing, especially when it comes to um, the people with disabilities receiving Medicaid, they're, they're vulnerable. They don't know necessarily what they're being charged for, what Medicaid is being charged for their care. So a lot of our suspects are capitalizing on that vulnerability, which I don't think a lot of people realize. By capitalizing on that vulnerability, um, it victimizes them over and over and over again. And again, when they actually need the benefits, they aren't always available then. The Medicaid spending in the United States and in the state of Colorado is out of control. It accounts for almost a quarter of the state annual budget, and that's just for the state's portion of Medicaid. The more fraud there is, the more Medicaid gets spent out, and the more Medicaid that gets spent out means more taxes and um, less money to go to other things like education and um, the other services the state pays for. So the the crime of Medicaid fraud impacts everyone, whether they receive Medicaid benefits or not, because it's taking up their hard-earned money and taxes and away from other benefits. People with disabilities need therapies, they need DME, they need these services that Medicaid pays for. So I haven't seen a lot of recipient fraud with people with disabilities at all. Whereas our cases, we're looking at providers who are stealing three, four million dollars a year from the system. So we get a bigger recovery for the Medicaid system. All money that we receive back goes back into the Medicaid system. Um, 
So I think we have a bigger bang for the buck by going after the providers. For more information or to find support if you are a victim with a disability, contact the ARCS National Center on Criminal Justice and Disability, www.thearc.org backslash nccjd or 800-433-5255. Think change. Talks, trainings, and tools to help in your work for or with people with intellectual and other developmental disabilities. Learn more at www.thinkchange.training. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.